my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, May 9th, 2012. So I figured out what Andy Stanley's tactic reminded me of. More details forthcoming. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we have to do the comparative work. As a result of it, what we do here is, well, it's not politically correct. Because apparently polit- the, the whole politically correct thing is to allow people to believe what they want to believe without hurting their feelings by saying something like, well, you're wrong. It's kind of like new math. You know, you all familiar with new math? New, ma- new math is where a child will be in a, a math class and, and learn that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But then when it comes time for them to do their homework, they might get the problem wrong. It would be, well, they put down 2 plus 2 equals 6. And it's not that that's wrong. So you don't take out a red marker and bleed on their homework and say, you are wrong. No, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It doesn't equal 6. What you do is you give Johnny a pat on the head and you say, good effort, Johnny. And you're, it's not that your problem, that your, your work there was wrong. No, no, no. It's just that there's a better answer than the answer that you gave. So let's rework the problem and let's see if we can see if there's maybe a better answer to this, Johnny, because we don't want to hurt your feelings and tell you that you're wrong. And, <clears throat> yeah, see, that's the the problem is, is that um, that's just not how life is. 
Um, there's right and there's wrong. There's truth and there's error. And in, in fact, I'm working on a, a story right now. I, I hope to get this. Well, it's not really a story. It's a it's a, a more extensive blog post, kind of b- developing some of the themes I've been uh, teasing out here at Fighting for the Faith into one particular place. And the the thing, the axe I'm, I want to grind on on this one has to do with the false split that's being put out there between uh, doctrine and life. You know, listen, listen, you know, we don't need that Christian doctrine. The important thing is, is that people's lives are being changed. And it's like, wow, you know, you, you think about that and you, you go, that is like the most non-Christian thing I've ever heard a so-called Christian pastor say. Because, you know, it when you, the study of sound doctrine is not done apart from Scripture. You can't do it. This, the study of Christian theology cannot take place apart from reading God's Word and really striving to understand what God the Holy Spirit has refer has re- revealed about Himself. You, you understand what I'm saying? And I, I this all comes back to the uh, the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And it's, uh, it's, so the, the basic idea is this. There is only one God. And God is not an it. God is not a force. Nor is God an absentee deity who's too busy doing deity-like things to notice or care about us. In fact, God has revealed himself to us. He's told us much about who he is, what he's like, what went wrong in his creation, and what he's done and is going to do about it. Um, so the idea here is this. Because God has revealed himself to us, we can know and speak truthfully about God. Um. In fact, God has revealed what he wants us to know about him. And, and and God has revealed that he wants us to know him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. I mean, two passages come to mind immediately. Um, uh, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Or, you know, Jesus' own words from the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, where he makes it clear that those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. In fact, this is what Jesus says, John fourteen twenty three. The hour is coming and is now here when true, the true worshipers, notice this is true worshipers. In Jesus' mind, there's a distinction between true worshipers and false worshipers. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must. It doesn't say may or might or some of them will. It says must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, if that's the case, that, you know, that God wants us to know him, that God says that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. All that comes back to this this commandment there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So, worship and belief in a God of your own making, in a God of your own imagination, 
in a God of your own personal experiences, especially if the details about that God that you claim to worship, if that God's different than the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, the details matter. Okay? It's not just that you believe in a God, but it's that you believe, accept, and trust in the God. There are no other gods. Uh, there is, I'm sorry, but the God of your imagination doesn't exist. Uh, the God, you know, the concept of the spirit of Brahman, and you know, it's found in the Buddhist religion, doesn't exist. Allah of Islam, that Unitarian God, doesn't exist. Neither does Shiva or Vishnu or, you know, any of the so-called deities of Hinduism. Those deities don't exist. Elohim of Mormonism doesn't exist. There is only one true God, and he wants us to know him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. The details matter. So there's no such thing as, as a Christian who only cares about morals or imperatives and forgets all that, that, that doctrine, churchy language stuff. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. You can't worship God in truth if you do not pay attention to, or worse, reject what he has revealed about himself. You're guilty of breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. None. And it doesn't matter if your God is named Jesus. In fact, one of the sketches that we do here at Fighting for the Faith, I play it on a regular basis during our uh, commercial segments for Marty Python's Flying Circus Church, um, it's actually, uh, you know, what, what do we call it? Max Holiday's Church Day Soleil. We're, we haven't made all the transitions. My son is actually currently deployed right now, and uh, he helps me out with those. But, uh, but the point is this, is that we have our Build-A-God sketch. And in that Build-A-God sketch, you have somebody showing up at the Build-A-God shop, kind of like Build-A-Bear, to craft their own deity, you know, to, and make their deity to their liking. And the punchline at the end of that sketch is, you know, the question, well, what are you going to name your deity? You know, so this, you know, this gal goes through the whole rigmarole of, of creating her own deity. And, you know, her deity happens to be female and gay affirming and all this other kind of stuff. And at the, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the sketch, the question is, so what are you going to name your deity? And the, the gal says, I think I'll name her Jesus. And the gal at the Build-A-God shop says, oh, that's great. That's what everybody names their God. See, it doesn't matter if your God is named Jesus. That doesn't matter. The question is, tell me about this Jesus that you believe in. Because the Apostle Paul himself warns us about false Jesuses. This is actually in Holy Scripture itself. I think it's Second uh, Corinthians eleven. I'm doing this from memory, so I'm taking a risk here. Yeah, here's what he says: Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul says, "I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If someone comes and proclaims to you," 
another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, well, you put up with it readily enough. Paul's not saying that to give him credit. He's chastising them for this. The Jesus you believe in matters. It's either the Jesus who was revealed in God's word, in the writings of the prophets, of the Torah, and the, and the apostles, or it's the Jesus of your own making. And it doesn't, doesn't impress me, or nor does it impress God one bit, if your deity that you've crafted and created for yourself out of your own imagination is entitled, is named Jesus. The name isn't the, isn't the thing that is the important part. The important part, the most important, is who is he? What has he done? Give me the details about who he is. Okay, and if those details don't line up with what he has revealed in his word, the way his, what he intended for us to understand in his word, then your God is a false God. Your Jesus is a false Jesus. You can't drive a wedge between the parts of the Bible that admonish us to, to have life transformation and and separate that from well the churchy Bible languagey stuff you know about the doctrine of the Trinity and and justification and sanctification and those are all churchy language and churchy words and 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 even and the world doesn't care about that all they care about is is if their life has been changed that's the way people talk nowadays in the church and that's nonsense it is the will of the Father that those who worship him must, Jesus said, must worship him in spirit and in truth. That means that all of your imaginations and intuitive thoughts and the things that you would prefer God to be, if those ideas are contradicted by the word of God, you jettison your ideas, and you let your mind be transformed by the word of God, and you repent, metanoia, change your mind. The idea is, is well, Christian doctrine isn't done by consensus. It's not done by a vote. It's not done by us sitting together in a room and saying, you know, hey, you know, the virgin birth, does that sound reasonable to you guys? Let's take a vote on it, you know? I, I'm reminded of a um, of something that the, uh, that the the White Horse Inn guys did. And, uh, you know, they have their roving reporter who goes out to these different pastoral conferences and asks them questions, you know, asks pe questions of the pastors at these pastoral conferences. And did you know that recently the, uh, that uh, the guy from uh, the White Horse Inn was at a pastor's conference and he simply made a statement and asked, do you agree or disagree? The statement was this, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. There is no one who seeks God. That was the statement. Okay. And so he said that he said this is the, this is the statement do you agree or disagree 66% of the pastors at this pastors conference 
disagreed with the statement. Those of you who listen to this program and, and know your Bible know that that statement was lifted word for word directly out of Romans chapter 3, which, by the way, is cross-referenced to an Old Testament passage found in the Psalms. So how is it that 66% of pastors interviewed at this pastor's conference disagree with the Apostle Paul who wrote what he wrote under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit? Answer, well, they don't consider the details of the God they believe in to really matter all that much. The only thing that matters to them is that they've made a difference in somebody's life. But that's not Christianity. Because Jesus himself said that the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit, and in truth. Or as Yahweh himself commanded on Mount Sinai, you will have no other God before me, including the one of your imagination, even if you named it Jesus. That Jesus, if it's not the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus revealed in the Old Testament and in the writings of the apostles in the New, it's an idol. And that Jesus is powerless to save you because that Jesus doesn't exist. That Jesus is just a figment of your imagination. So you need to repent. And you need to listen to what God has revealed about himself. And when he reveals something about himself that you vehemently disagree with, make a note of it. Because the thing that you vehemently disagree with God regarding that's the very thing you need to get on your knees and confess as a sin. Confess as a sin where you are guilty of breaking the first commandment. You will have no other gods before the one true God. Your ideas, your imagination, your little self-constructed deity is powerless to save you. Repent. And believe and trust in the one who has revealed himself in Scripture. And accept and believe what he has said about himself. It is through the doctrinal portions of Scripture that our minds are transformed and renewed. And that is part of the life transformation that God intends for us because God's intention for us regarding life change isn't just limited to the concept of things going better for us in our marriage or in our parenting or at our job, but also for us to have our lives transformed from being idolaters to those who worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. All right, so here's what we're going to do for the balance of today's program. Again, I got three things on the docket. First thing we're going to do is we're going to um, take a look at a Christian Post story regarding Andy Stanley. And um, Andy Stanley has avoided um, stating anything clearly regarding the homosexual issue in his last sermon. And I'm going to read to you part of this story from the uh, Christian Post, and then we're going to hop into the Pirate Christian Radio Time Machine 
and we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to the year 2006, and I'm going to demonstrate to you that Andy Stanley's tactic here is the exact same tactic employed by a very well-known heretical emergent. Yeah, um, yeah. so that's what we're going to do for part of today. Then we're going to uh, finish up today uh, our series that we've been doing, the three-part series on Tony Jones's uh, Baylor University chapel speech where he claims to be talking about a better atonement. In the first two segments, we've demonstrated that he hasn't cited any scripture and that he's only debunked a, um, a really bad, you know, mischaracterization or he's only debunked metaphors he hasn't actually debunked anything biblical and uh, but that's not going to stop him today from actually spending some time putting forth what he believes is a better theory of the atonement because of you know in his mind he's completely decimated the concept of the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins he's done nothing of the sort and i would recommend going if you if you haven't listened to Part two of the segment, you need you need to listen to part one and part two, but part two, last week, I spent a lot of time laying out the biblical case, showing you from God's word where this idea, the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins is taught in scripture. And so if you don't have that already in mind, um, I recommend that you, you might want to pause here on this episode of Fighting for the Faith and go back to last week and listen to part two before you move forward. So anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. From the Christian Post, the headline reads, Andy Stanley avoids gay issue in last sermon of controversial series. This is by Anugrah Kumar of the Christian Post. The story begins, weeks after leaving some Christians wondering about his stance on homosexuality, Pastor Andy Stanley avoided explicitly addressing the issue on Sunday during his weekend message. In his final message of an eight-part sermon series on what it means to be Christian, Stanley, who leads North Point Community Church in Alfreda, Georgia, did not use the words gay or homosexuality, but reminded the audience what he mentioned at the beginning of the series that Christians had a branding problem. Christians, he said, are viewed as being judgmental, homophobic, moralists, who think that they are the only ones going to heaven and who secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Oh, wow. <clears throat> hmm. So Christians think they're the only ones going to heaven, which immediately would lead me to ask the question, really, do you know of anybody who is going to be in, well, the heavenly kingdom apart from repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The scripture doesn't know, it doesn't reveal that anybody will be with Christ who refuses to repent and be forgiven of their sins. Um, by the way, those people who have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, um, well, you can make the claim that, that they are called Christians, 
Now, I understand that from the book of Acts, that's not the first name given to Christians, um, and that the term Christian itself was not a name concocted by Christians, but was, you know, basically a, a, a demeaning term uh, created by non-Christians. I, I get that. But regardless of the label you slap on it, whether you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of the way, or if you call yourself a Christian, if what you mean by that is that you have been brought to repentance of your sins, through the preaching of the law of God, you have been brought to sorrow and contrition, feeling terrors of God's law and understanding that you are subject to the wrath of God because of your personal wickedness, and you've been assured and come to trust in the good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins in accordance with the Scripture, was raised again on the third day for your justification, that your confession is is that Jesus died for you, well, then you'll be in heaven, right? I mean, that's the idea. But see, there's the other part of it. I don't know anybody who secretly relishes the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Do you know of any Christians who secretly relish the fact that everyone's going to hell? But see, then again, that's kind of a a language problem, don't you think? Um, And the language problem is this, is that if there's a bunch of people out there who are Christians who are secretly relishing the fact that everyone else is going to hell, how would you and I know about that? I mean, if that's a secret, that means that they've never told anybody else. And so the only way that you would know that there's a bunch of people out there who are secretly relishing the idea that everyone else is going to hell would be if you had supernatural abilities to see into their heart and into their mind. And maybe it's you've had a vision from God. I don't know. But, I mean, don't you think it's problematic here? So he says Christianity has a branding problem. Yeah, Dr. Mueller's uh, words come ringing back here about how liberals are trying to save Christianity from itself. So Christians, uh, uh, so Christians have a branding problem. They're viewed as being judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven. Well, I do think that if you haven't been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that I see nothing in Scripture that would hold out even the remotest link of hope for you. So um, if you don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you remain under the wrath of God. That's what Jesus said. That's what the apostles said. So um, anyway, so Stanley has caused some to question his stance on homosexuality when in an April 15th sermon, he told the story of a divorced couple who formerly attended North Point together. They separated after the husband began a same-sex relationship with another man who was still married to a woman. The man and his partner wanted to serve as volunteers at the church, but Stanley explained that the two men were committing adultery. Well, no, they're actually committing homosexual sin. Uh, since one of them did not finalize his divorce yet, uh, yet and thus could not serve as uh, volunteers, the messy story, as Stanley described it, ended with the gay couple, the first man's ex-wife and their child, as well as their new boyfriend and his child from another relationship, all coming to worship together at a service in the church. Uh, Christians, he said, are called not to hold on to the truth, but also to grace which includes forgiveness and love. Let me read that sentence again, because I think I read it wrong. Christians, he said, are not only called to hold to the truth, 
but also to grace, which includes forgiveness of love and love. Okay, well, yeah, okay, not only hold on to the truth, but see, that's the thing. The truth is, is that we're all sinners. And if you're not going to tell somebody who's a homosexual the truth, that they are in sin, that they will be judged for, and that Christ died for those sins and they need to repent and be forgiven, well, there's nothing graceful or loving about that because you've left them in their sins, right? How can they get forgiveness for their sins that they've committed of homosexuality if they're not told and believe that what they've done in homosexual relations and lust is sin against a holy and just God. So Stanley had pointed to uh, the Christian Post to his message series when asked Wednesday for clarification on his views on homosexuality, added that he might issue a statement to the Christian Post in the near future about the topic, referring to one of the last times Jesus spoke to his disciples as found in John 13, uh, 1 through seventeen thirty five. Stanley quoted Jesus as saying, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. But this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, he stressed the words, by this everyone will know. So the pastor said, uh, today's Christians have lost sight of this. Um, yeah, again, my question is, how are you defining love? But what I find more interesting here is that uh, Andy Stanley is not giving a straight-up answer to the question. And um, I happen to have been around the block a couple of times, and I was thinking about this very thing and realized, you know what? Andy Stanley is engaging in the exact same topic I've seen another emer- well, an, an emergent leader use in the past. In fact, uh, hang on a second here. Let me uh, whirl up the uh, pirate Christian radio time machine. Hang, hang on a second here. Let's uh, get this going here. There we are. All right, so there's our flux capacitor. Hang on, let me uh, reset that. All right, time circuits. There we are. Okay, so I'm going to set the time circuits here for January 23rd, 2006. And uh, let's go for uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. There we go. All right. Uh, f- uh, those of you who've uh, traveled with me in the past, uh, please don your appropriate Fighting for the Faith time travel attire and safety gear at this point as we roll up to 88 miles an hour. Here we go. single time hang on let me there yeah yeah just the time machine letting me know that we're out of plutonium again tough stuff to come by by the way it's january 23rd 2006 and i am looking at uh well christianity today's leadership journal called out of ur uh yeah leadership journal out of ur you can find this at out of ur.com look in their archives there at out of ur dot com and you will find well a headline in well the headline says this Brian McLaren 
on the homosexual question, finding a pastoral response. Um, the uh, the author of this particular um, post there at the Out of Ur says, in his prominent role as author, theologian, speaker, and leader of the emergent conversation, some forget that Brian McLaren is also a pastor. In the latest issue of Leadership Journal, which focuses on ministry in a sexually charged culture, Brian shares a story that reveals the complexity of the homosexual question, a question where theology, truth, sin, grace, culture, politics, and pastoral wisdom collide. The couple approached me immediately after the service. This is all McLaren here. This was their first time visiting, and they really enjoyed the service. They said, but they had one question. You can guess what the question was about. Not transubstantiation, not about speaking in tongues, not inerrancy or eschatology, but whether our, where our church stood on homosexuality. The still small voice told me not to answer. So God, the Holy Spirit, spoke to Brian McLaren and told him not to answer. Instead, I asked, can you tell me why that question is important to you? It's a long story, he said with a laugh. Usually when I'm asked about the subject, it's by conservative Christians wanting to be sure that we conform to what I call radio orthodoxy, i.e. the religio-political priorities mandated by many big-name religious broadcasters. Sometimes it's asked by ex-gays who want to be sure they'll be supported in their ongoing reorientation process, or parents whose children have recently come out. But the young woman explained, This is the first time my fiancé and I have ever actually attended a Christian service since we were both raised as agnostics. So I suppose they were like most unchurched young adults I meet who wouldn't want to be part of an anti-homosexual organization any more than they'd want to be part of a racist or terrorist organization. Nice, isn't that, you know, yeah, so if you're anti-homosexual, you're right there with racists and terrorists. Anyway, so he says, I hesitate in answering the homosexual question, not because I'm cowardly or a flip-flopper who wants to tickle ears, but because I'm a pastor. And pastors have learned from Jesus that there is more to answering a question than being right or even honest. We must also be pastoral. So pastoral, see, you know, you can be, you can be pastoral and not, not even worry about the truth question. Wow. So that means understanding the question beneath the question, the need for fear or hope or assumption that motivates the question. So we pastors want to frame our answers around that need. We want to, we want to fit in with the Holy Spirit's work in that person's life at that particular moment. But to uh, to be biblically, uh, to put it biblically, we want to be sure our answers are seasoned with salt and appropriate to the need of the moment. So most of the emerging leaders I know share my agony over this question. We fear that the whole issue may be manipulated far more than we realize by political parties seeking to have percentage points off their opponent's constituency. We see whatever we say gets sucked into a vortex of politicized culture wars, rhetoric, and we're pastors, evangelists, church planners, and disciple makers, not political cultural warriors. Those who bring us honest questions are people we're trying to care for in Christ's name, not cultural enemies we're trying to vanquish. Frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. We've heard all sides, but no position has yet won our confidence so that we can say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. 
That alienates us from both liberals and conservatives who seem to know exactly what we should think. Even if we are convinced that, a homose- that homosexual behavior is always sinful, we still want to treat gay and lesbian people with more dignity, gentleness, and respect than our colleagues do. If we think that there may actually be a legitimate context for some homosexual relationships, we know that the biblical arguments are nuanced and multi-layered and that the pastoral ramifications are staggeringly complex. We aren't sure if or where lines are to be drawn, nor do we know how to enforce with fairness whatever lines are drawn. Perhaps we need a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements. In the meantime, we'll practice prayerful Christian dialogue, listening respectfully, disagreeing agreeably. When decisions need to be made, they'll be, they'll be admittedly provisional. We'll keep our ears attuned to scholars in biblical studies, theology, ethics, and psychology, genetics, and sociology, and related fields. Then in five years, if we have clarity, then we'll speak. If not, well, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. After all, many important issues in church history took centuries to figure out. So maybe this moratorium will help us resist our winds of doctrine blowing furiously from the left and the right so that we can patiently wait for the wind of the Spirit to set our course. That was from January of 2006. Obviously, the five-year moratorium has passed. Maybe we're into the second one. I don't know. But what I find interesting is this. Number one, there's two things that Brian McLaren, well, actually, there's one thing in particular that Brian McLaren and Andy Stanley both have in common. The thing that they both have in common is that they are both prominent leaders in the leadership network, seeker-driven, purpose-driven networks. Okay, Now, Brian McLaren at that time was the bee's knees. Since the publication of his new kind of Christianity, he hasn't been so, well, warmly embraced by those in the seeker-driven movement. But at that time, Brian McLaren was one of the big stars out there in the seeker-driven emerging church movement. Okay, He and Andy Stanley have that both in common. But most notably here, I think it's important to note this that Andy Stanley is engaging in the same tactic that Brian McLaren engaged in in January of 2006. And that tactic is to attack and impugn Christians who are holding firm to what the Scriptures teach regarding the sin of homosexuality and at the same time refusing in the name of love, in the name of charity, in the name of following the Spirit, refusing to give a clear and biblical answer to the question, where do you stand on the issue of homosexuality? Are you in agreement with God's word or are you in conflict with it? And do you deny it, attack it, and impugn it? That's the question that needs to be answered. And I think we need to put some pressure on Andy Stanley to answer the question and point out the fact that he's engaging in the same tactics that Brian McLaren engaged in in 2006. By the way, Brian McLaren now openly affirms homosexuality, as do 
Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and other leaders in the emergent church movement. So we've seen this tactic used before. We have also see we've also seen historically where those who use this tactic end up. They end up in the ghetto of liberalism and in the big waste bin of so-called Christian church leaders who've abandoned a clear teaching of God's word and have engaged in attacking it, denying it, and impugning it. And he needs to repent and worship God in spirit and in truth because he's not loving his homosexual neighbors and those who attend his church unless he confronts them with their sins and placards Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of those sins. Pray for Andy Stanley and send him notes. Let him know what you think. Call him to repentance. Call him back to a clear preaching of God's word and to stop this obfuscation. We've seen this tactic before, and it never ends well. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. 
Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I'd better replace it then. Let's see here. Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's.
For more information about gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. And thank you for your support. Warning, going squishy on the homosexual issue and refusing to call it a sin is the most unloving thing you can do with a homosexual. It keeps them dead in their sins and unforgiven. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget. It's also important to note that playing second fiddle is Tony Jones. This is a rendition of Strauss's also sprung Zarathustra, an homage to the philosophical writings of postmodern father Friedrich Nietzsche. It is important to note that they strive to keep the Kantian distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal as they let the spirit guide them in their spiritual endeavor of interpreting this important work. Yeah, brings tears to my eyes every time. All right, so this is part three. In fact, I think this is our last installment on this particular uh, issue uh, of uh, Tony Jones's well sermon, uh, chapel speech, um, something like that, uh, at Baylor University, where he's uh, supposedly talking about a better atonement. And we are 20 minutes into a 30-minute um, chapel presentation and Tony Jones um, has somehow, well, deceived himself into believing that he's completely overthrown uh, the biblical teaching of the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And he's done this by beating up on a, well, a, a poor metaphor. He's defeated the metaphor, and therefore he's apparently defeated the doctrine itself. And the weird thing is, is that he's doing theology without any biblical texts all i can say is 
Wow, that takes some major arrogance. And this is not a humble hermeneutic, if you ask me. This is the epitome of, well, arrogance, uh, postmodern arrogance, if you would, on his part. That, But anyway, we're going to let him finish up today. And uh, so we're going to critique what he said here. And I'm going to go back in time into the video, maybe about you know, 30, 40 seconds, maybe a little longer, just so we can kind of orient ourselves to go, oh, yeah, I remember him saying that so that we can continue forward. So uh, without any further ado, here is Tony Jones from his Baylor University Better Atonement Chapel um, sermon. I'm going to take the punishment for him. Everybody in the courtroom would be like, uh, no, 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 you don't get to do that. That's not justice. That's not how justice works. Justice isn't an innocent victim taking the penalty for a guilty perpetrator. Yeah, no verses there. All those verses there that talk about Jesus being pierced for our transgressions. Although he knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us so that we'd be the righteous. You know, anyway, listen to last week's installment, episode two, you know, of this, of this installment number two. Uh, I lay out all the biblical passages. Uh, Tony Jones hasn't done, he's the only guy I know who's capable of doing theology without any verses. That's not justice. We don't do it like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, again, note that you're using a human analogy to define what divine justice is you got any verses there um tony guilt is guilt and it sticks with the guilty party it can't be transferred to an innocent party really how do you know that how do you know that guilt can't be transferred to an innocent party i mean that sounds like a transcendent truth claim hmm, and you said it with such certainty too how non-postmodern of you. Weird. How do you know this? Yet the scripture says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would just point you to Psalm 53 and say, well, there it is. God himself, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, said of Jesus that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then you're saying, you can't transfer guilt to an innocent party? How do you know you can't? I mean, do, do you know better than the prophet Isaiah? I'm curious. Further, if you think back to that chasm. Yeah, which is nowhere taught in Scripture. That's You're basically beating up on an illustration from the four spiritual laws. Well, tracked. Because everybody knows that's the defining definition. What kind of God can't cross a chasm? Again, we end up... What kind of theologian can't quote a verse? I'm curious. ...up in this understanding of the atonement with a very impotent God. You know, more like a very arrogant theologian who's not actually correctly even representing the doctrine itself. And you haven't provided a single verse. Weird. A God who can't quite cross a chasm. A God who is... Look, I'm God, and I'm in a nutshell, and I can't get out. He's bound by... Oh, no, I'm God in a box. I'm in a box. Oh, no, God, you got to get God out of the box. Quick. God's allergic to boxes. This is ridiculous, Tony. You have a PhD in theology from Princeton, and this is how they taught you how to do theology? 
by some universal code of justice to not let guilty people spend an eternity with him. He demands justice. Maybe justice is part of God's character itself, and God can't contradict his character or his being. Not that there's any passages that say anything like that. There are. But then this law, this sense of justice becomes greater than God himself. God is No, it doesn't. That's not, again, no verses here. Servient to some law of justice. So I want to propose to you a third way to think of the atonement as we approach Good Friday and Easter. A third way. Okay. You got any Bible passages to back up your third way of viewing the atonement? Or is this just something you spun out of your head? Throughout the history of Israel, ancient Israel, and through other ancient religions, human beings tried to do this very thing. Human beings tried. Hmm. You know, it's funny. When I read the Torah... Um, I find that God himself is the one who revealed that it was his will that the children of Israel sacrifice idols. This wasn't something concocted in the mind of human beings, but it was something that was revealed and commanded by God. Don't you think that's a very important distinction, Tony? To get an innocent victim to stand between them and God. And it was called a sacrifice. So people would go to a temple and they would sacrifice an ox, slit its throat and let the blood run over the altar and down the steps of the temple. Or if you couldn't afford an ox, you'd buy a couple doves and you'd go sacrifice them in the temple. All attempts to appease a bloodthirsty God. Huh. Yet when I read uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it clearly says that God is the one who is commanding the sacrifices. God demands sacrifice. And yet what's interesting is throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, what we find is God repeatedly saying to the people of Israel, as he says to King Saul, the very first king of Israel, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want your obedience. I want your... <laughs> oh, wow. Now we're deconstructing sacrifice. So what we should assume then is that God isn't the one who revealed to Moses regarding the whole sacrificial system. So what we're doing is we're pitting verses against each other. Oh, there's an apparent contradiction. So there, that, you know... The... Fidelity. I want your fealty to me. Yeah, the whole point of this of those sacrifices was is that they were guilty of not having fidelity to God and sinning against him. There was so his wrath was propitiated by the sacrifice. You get what I'm saying? That's what his word says. Not your blood sacrifices. That doesn't bring us closer together. In ancient Israel there was another bloodless kind of sacrifice. It was called the scapegoat. There's a painting here, a very famous painting of this practice in ancient Israel. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Israel, the people of Israel would come together around a goat and they would lay their hands on the goat. 
they would symbolically lay their sins on the goat. And then the goat would be sent off out of the city into the wilderness. And as the people watched, it was like a religious ritual, right? Like the- yeah, on the day of Yom Kippur, there was also a sacrifice that, you know, that was killed. There was two, not just one. Wait, we take communion today. They watch the goat carry their sins symbolically out into the wilderness to die. And on the Day of Atonement, they had a fresh start with God and with one another. And they did it every year. This was the way it happened. Laying their sins on an innocent victim. And that victim carried their sins away from them. The third way that I want to propose to you to think about the death of the Christ. A third way. This is his own way that he's making up. No one has ever thunk this before until Tony Jones has come along and solved the mystery and the conundrum. On Good Friday is as the last scapegoat. The last one on whom we lay our sins. The last innocent victim who shows that this whole system of blood sacrifice doesn't work. His so the reason why Jesus died on the cross was to prove that blood sacrifice doesn't work. Yet, the passage I read from Hebrews last week said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It doesn't talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not working. It, it, it Read Hebrews, you know, chapter 7, 8, 9, you know, read those. And you'll see that while Jesus' death on the cross actually worked, we're, oh man. Death is the ultimate judgment against all of our attempts to appease a blood-hungry God. And here's how it does that. Because it's not us trying to appease God. It is all about God crossing that chasm to us. Throughout the Old Testament, people try and God tries to find reunification that we lost in the garden. So people follow God through the wilderness, right? He's a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day as he brings the Israelites out of Egypt. God and humankind speak through mediators like prophets. God gives a whole hundreds and hundreds of Levitical laws. All of these are attempts, and the sacrificial system, are all attempts to bring God and humanity back together, and they all fail. The prophets don't work, the monarchy doesn't work, the laws don't work, the sacrificial system doesn't work. Until finally, God comes all the way. And in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God actually takes on human flesh. God becomes incarnate in a human being. And God is the protagonist. God bridges the gap 
that we could not bridge and becomes human. This was the way for reunification between human beings and God. And don't for a minute think that the humanity of Jesus was any less than your humanity. I mean, it's clear in the Gospels that everything that we experience, Jesus experienced. Or another way to say it is, God experienced. Loneliness, hunger, fatigue. Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died. Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends. Jesus experienced the human experience. And in so doing, God entered fully into our experience. To the point of death on a cross. This is what Paul writes in the second chapter of Philippians. That God humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. It's God's humility that happens on the cross. So much so that at, in the very last moments, in, in a verse that you will probably hear a week from Friday if you go to a Good Friday service, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries this from the cross. And maybe you've heard that in the past and been like, well, that's very odd. Like, how can God, if Jesus is God, how can God say, God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't Jesus know that he's God? But think of it. God enters so deeply into the human experience that he even experiences the absence of God. Like David, the psalmist, who wrote, My God, why have you forsaken me? And repeatedly writes in the Psalms, Where are you, God? To the prophets who cried out, God, are you even there? Are you listening? To Job, who said, What kind of a God are you that does this to me? To Jesus. When God himself experiences the absence of God. Like you do. Like I do. Where are you? Man, this is painful. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood and goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Seems to me that the language of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus' death accomplished something. It wasn't a symbol of, well, the whole sacrificial system not working. No, it was the complete fulfillment of it. 
For where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who has made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hmm. So who who do you like better there? The Apostle Paul's explanation, by the way, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Do you, the author of Hebrews in the inspired text? Or, well, Tony Jones's vapid, non-substantial speculations. The, the, the idea being Jesus' death on the cross was to prove to us once and for all, this whole thing doesn't work. Yet the book of Hebrews makes it clear that it worked. Huh. Isaiah 53 makes it clear it worked. By his stripes we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Or Paul writing in First Second Corinthians 5, He made him to be sin who knew no sin for us, so that we might be the righteousness of God. So at the end of the day, Tony Jones's third way, proposition, speculation is, is that the whole, well, think of it this way. Jesus' death on the cross was to show us that the whole sacrificial thing didn't work anyway. Wow. You God. Why do you not hear me? Why do you not answer my prayers? Are you even there? That's how deeply into the human experience God dives. Perfect solidarity between God and humanity is achieved in the person of Jesus and at the moment of the crucifixion. The single most important episode in all of cosmic history when God and humanity are joined, 
in the experience of God forsakenness. What God offers to me and to you and what we commemorate on Good Friday is God diving into the deep end of the pool of human experience and saying, I take all this human experience up into me, up into my Trinitarian... So he's not offering you the forgiveness of sins and redemption by his blood, which is what the biblical passages say. No, no, no. Jesus is letting us know that he was able to swim in the deep end of humanity and suck up all of our experience. So he has solidarity with us. What is that song? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home? Yeah, that's this theory of the atonement. Self. Our reunification is complete in the person of Jesus and the act of the crucifixion, and it's redeemed in the new life that comes on Easter morning. Completely vapid. Words. They've been evacuated of all of their meaningful biblical definitions. Let's pray. No. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure what God you believe in there, Tony, but that ain't the God of the Bible, nor is that the Jesus of the Bible. So this is the epitome of what it sounds like to not worship God in spirit and in truth, but to reject what he has revealed in his word and hang on to your own idolatrous ideas. Yeah, I think it's significant to note also that, uh, well, Tony Jones is a vocal advocate of gay marriage and other things. Yeah, this is what happens when you attack, deny, and impugn what God has revealed about himself in his word and hang on to your ideas idolatrously, because that's what that was. That's not the, a correct biblical explanation of what Christ was doing on the cross. That was pure, unadulterated, well, whoring after a false idol, an idol of Tony Jones's making. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. We'll be right back. By the way, Blackaby on the other end of the commercial. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheap O Air as one of our featured advertisers. 
Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going to be continuing our series on Blackaby, being presented by Granger Community Church in Granger, Indiana. Details forthcoming here in just a second. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's, it's not a sermon, it's from the midweek so-called in-depth adult Bible study at Granger Community Church as they've been working their way through the series called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. 
Now, the folks there at Granger have been working their way through the workbook version of this particular curriculum. And as we've noted already, there is some significant Bible twisting going on to make the claim that you need to learn how to experience God. And it's it's on you to figure out where God is working in the world so that you can join him and other such statements. But when we take Blackaby's verses that he provides for his teaching, put them back into context, we've found that the Bible doesn't actually teach the things that Blackaby is teaching in his curriculum. But don't let that stop a good seeker-driven mystic. No way. They're just going to plow on and you know start to try to figure out where God is speaking all over the place. Is God speaking in your chicken noodle soup? Is God speaking in the experience that you had this morning in the parking lot at Walmart? Is God speaking to you, well, voices in your head style? Yeah, there's all kinds of problems with this stuff. But anyway, Mark Beeson's going to pick up the torch this week, and he's going to teach on this. And he does a little bit more teaching than the other guys there at Granger, but he also does the... uh, the questions, you know, ask the questions of the people there in attendance. So we're going to cover all of that in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So let me uh, kill the music. Dun, 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 dun. Right there, yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, let's dive into this week's installment of our review of Granger Community Church's teaching on uh, Henry Blackaby's experience in God. Here's Mark Beeson. Welcome. I'm glad that you are here for this installment of our journey together, this step on the journey. My name is Mark Beeson, and I'm one of the pastors at the church that uh, is hosting this grand adventure of experiencing God. I welcome you. I'm encouraged by your faithfulness, whether you're doing this uh, at your laptop right now, kind of preparing yourself to meet with some others, or whether you're on the online Experiencing God group, or whether you're at the Granger campus, or whether you are in your dorm room, or with your friends, or in a small group Bible study, wherever you are, uh, it is great right now to launch into the next step together. And uh, I simply want to uh, celebrate that halfway through, we're right now coming up to the halfway mark, Uh, you are still pressing in. Now, there's a a passage in the Old Testament uh, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and was rebuilding the wall around the city. The Bible says that they were halfway through and people began to be discouraged. They began to grumble among themselves. And if you've ever taken on a project that was challenging, you know halfway through can be very, very disconcerting. How many of you remember halfway through wallpapering a room with some, yes. And you remember trying to get along with people you had previously loved before the wallpaper project. You, you, and you're all in there wallpapering and it's half done and there's a mess everywhere and you're not quite where you wanna be yet. And the challenge of just not throwing everything on the floor and stomping out of the room is almost beyond us. But apparently not, because God is helping us in this journey, this 
uh, process that we're sharing together, this experience that is moving us into a richer, deeper relationship with God. And so halfway through, you're still engaged and uh, pressing in, making progress, and I could not be more excited for you, couldn't be more proud of you. Uh, you probably have your, you have your books with you, right? So I want to ask you to go to page 96. Yeah, I got mine right Just here. Just find page 96 and uh, turn there, and you'll see there are a number of questions on page 96. I want to call your attention to the fifth question. Of course, we've all done this already, and you've already been through the process. But question number five on page 96 caught my attention, and I wanted to simply uh, invite you to reflect on this just for a second with me. You drop down on page 96, about three-fourths down the page. Question number five, have you found it? Have you responded to what God has called to your attention? There's the question. Have you responded yet to what God has called to your attention? Now, I will not name names. However, I will tell you a story about a boy. Now, I want to point something out. Apparently, the thing that God's supposed to bring to your attention isn't something written in the biblical text. You are supposed to have, well, experienced God speaking to you somewhere out there. There is anywhere outside of the Bible. And you need to respond uh, apparently. And so this is how Blackaby handles the text, by the way. I'm going to back up just a little bit to uh, page 94, where the headline reads, God speaks by the Holy Spirit. Okay. And we've already noted here that uh, Blackaby has twisted Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, the whole point of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 is that God's, well, done speaking. He spoke now by his son so to speak, okay? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 declares, this is Blackaby writing now, in the past God spoke to our forefathers of the prophets many times in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Taken out of context, that's supposedly to mean that, oh, well, God's still speaking to us. In the Gospels, God spoke through his son, Jesus. The Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The disciples would have been foolish to say, it's wonderful knowing you, Jesus, but we would really like to know the Father. When Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us, Jesus responded, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I had been among you for such a time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. So when Jesus spoke, the Father was speaking through him. When Jesus did a miracle, the Father was doing his work through Jesus. Just as surely as Moses was face to face with God at the burning bush, the disciples were face to face with God in a personal relationship with Jesus. Their encounter with Jesus was an encounter with God. To hear from Jesus was to hear from God. So, one, write a summary statement of the way God spoke during Jesus' life. So in the Gospel accounts, God was in Christ, and God spoke by Jesus. When the disciples heard Jesus, they heard from God. And when Jesus spoke, that was an encounter with God. So when we move from the Gospels to Acts and to the present day, we often change our mindset. We live as if God quit speaking personally to his people. We fail to realize that an encounter with the Holy Spirit who lives within us is an encounter with God. So God clearly spoke to his people in Acts. God speaks to us today from Acts to the present. God has been speaking to his people by the Holy Spirit. Now notice this is not in the word. This is sans without the word. 
So the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone's life. By the way, this again, this uh, the point I'm going to make here is this, this is a corrupted, false doctrine of what's called the mystical union. Okay, that somehow that because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that that means that God is revealing things in our hearts. So the Holy Spirit takes up residence in someone's life. When the person becomes a Christian, you yourselves are God's temple. God's Spirit lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All these are true, by the way. This is all part of the doctrine of the mystical union. And because the Spirit is always present in a believer, he can speak to you clearly at any time. Yeah, by the way, um, the, the idea of God, you know, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, true. The God's Spirit lives in us, true. But it doesn't say God's Spirit speaks. Because remember, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, graphes, is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking, so the man of God may be fully equipped, fully qualified, complete every, for every good work. Okay, this is a corrupt doctrine of the mystical union, and it's a and he's it's a slippery way he's doing it here. See, it says that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and then he says, so he can. Where does it say God's going to speak into my heart? Just because he can doesn't mean that he's going to, or that he's said that he would. So he can speak to you clearly at any time. We have already learned that God speaks to his people. Here are some of the key ideas that we examine. In the Old Testament, God spoke in many different ways. In the Gospels, God spoke through his Son. God spoke in Acts and speaks in the present by the Holy Spirit. So God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. All of these different streams of authority... Not sola scriptura, but all of these different streams apparently God is speaking. So knowing God's voice comes from an intimate love relationship with him, not, not knowing his word. But you know what? You have an intimate love relationship with God, you'll hear his voice, and you'll, know, you'll learn to recognize it. No, no, no. The way you learn to recognize God's voice is become so intimately familiar with his word, the written word, you will not be deceived by the schemes and deceptions of the devil. Okay? Uh, um, God speaks when he has a purpose in mind for your life. The moment God speaks to you is the time. He wants you to respond to him. The moment God speaks to you is God's timing. So based on these truths, answer the following questions. How did God speak in the Old Testament? How did God speak in the Gospels? How did God speak in Acts and in the, in the present? How do you know God's voice? How do you know God's timing? Notice it goes... <laughs> So we're, we're basically not reading the Bible for content. We're looking at patterns that, that we can somehow apply to our life so that we can then encounter God without his word, right? He continues, so let's review other things you learned in earlier units about God, uh, w the way God speaks through the Holy Spirit. Because of sin, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks. All have turned aside, they have together become worthless. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Spiritual cr truths can be revealed only by God. Uh-huh, no eyes have seen, no eyes has heard. Or conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit would teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said to you. That's John fourteen twenty six. Out of context, go back and listen to, I think, last Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, where I read to you, 
an article that I wrote that clearly demonstrates hermeneutically that John 14, 26 is not a promise that God's going to speak into your heart. Anybody who tells you that is ignoring what the text says. God isn't promising that the Holy Spirit's going to speak into your heart. He's promising the disciples that the Holy Spirit would remind them of all that they encountered with and heard Jesus say so that they could record it for us. And it would be part of their teaching. He's promising them inerrant teaching, okay, uh, that's not subject to memory loss, if you would. So he's taken 14, 20. So the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus, and he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only. This is uh, this is all these passages ripped out of context to make it basically make it look like the Bible teaches mysticism, and it doesn't. So now we're at page 96, okay? So when God spoke to Moses and the others in the Old Testament, those events were encounters with God, and an encounter with Jesus was an encounter with God for the disciples in the same way your encounter with the Holy Spirit is an encounter with God for you. Because you have the Holy Spirit, he guides you into all truth and teaches you all things. Notice, misapplication of John 14, 26. It, there's not a promise in John 14, 26 to me or you. You understand spiritual truth because the Holy Spirit works in your life. You cannot understand God's word unless the Spirit of God teaches you. When you read the word, the author himself is present to instruct you. Truth is never discovered. It is revealed. So when the Holy Spirit reveals truth to you, he's not leading you to an, uh, he is not leading you to an encounter with God. That is an encounter. That is an encounter with God. So now question number five then is, so have you responded what God has called to your attention? Um, which verse are you referring to, Mark? Now, I will not name names. However, I will tell you a story about a boy who was being raised by one of the godliest women on earth. He may or may not have been my son. I'm just telling you a story about a boy being raised by a godly woman, a fine, fine uh, uh, person of character and who wants nothing more than to be helpful to her beloved son. I remember a conversation. Son, you need to get ready to go. No movement. Five minutes later, this wonderful mother comes back into the room, surprised to see there's been no action taken whatsoever. Very gently, graciously, son, you need to get ready to go. This time, Okay, no movement, just words. Assuming that he will act on what he said, this fine follower of Jesus leaves the room only to come back five minutes later and discover nothing has happened. Son, she says, get ready to go. It's now notice this illustration you know, is used to point, you know, basically drive the point home. You know, we're going through Blackaby, so now God's telling you to do stuff. Granted, it's not written in the Word, but, you know, you're you are supposed to figure out what he's up to in the world and join him. So your job now is that now that God has shown you where he's working, have you jumped in yet? That's the point of this illustration. Time to get ready to go. Now, I tell you this story, not even uh, telling at all. You don't want to know all the outcomes. 
We don't know what may have happened shortly thereafter as other people got involved in the process. <laughs> I tell you this story to say this. When God reveals something to us, it is so that we can act on what God has revealed and we can take steps to adjust our lives to do something probably different than we're doing so that we adjust our lives and align ourselves with the will of God. Go to the very back cover of this book that we've been working in together. Go all the way to the back cover, the inside of the back cover. You have seen this again and again. You've seen me draw it. You have drawn it. We, we reference it again and again. Inside the back cover, let's remember halfway through what it exactly it is that we're doing. Remember, God is always at work. God was working before you came on the scene, and God is at work right now. And God wants a loving relationship with you that is real and personal. So God invites you, as we move around the little circle on the back diagram, God invites you to become involved with him and speaks to you. This is where we are in this particular step we're sharing in this adventure this week. God speaks to you. Number four, you see it on the page? By the Holy Spirit, God speaks. Through the Bible. Notice the Bible is the tool that the Spirit uses. God speaks through the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Bible. God speaks by the Spirit through prayer. God speaks by the Spirit through your circumstances. God speaks by the Spirit through the church. Are your circumstances God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness? It's a fair question because all Scripture is so that God can reveal God's own self to you and God can reveal God's purposes to you and the Spirit will help you so that God can reveal God's ways to you. And when God reveals through prayer and through the church and through the scriptures and through circumstances, through the church, God reveals his will and his way. God expects that we would act on the invitation. And so this is where we find ourselves, you and I. It's where we find ourselves uh, in this process, responding to God. And God's invitation is always that we will respond, and we will respond quickly. Because in this experience of God, people will follow our example, and we are all committed to being reproducing followers of Jesus. And that Granger Community Church would be a reproducing church. So we would reproduce other followers like ourselves. The church would reproduce other churches like Granger Community Church reproducing other churches. So what I want to do is give you just a moment to consider, as we're on this journey together, as we're making progress together, that it's just very possible that what we're doing right now is in reality what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, this is, this is what it is. It is in community, listening and responding to the invitation of God, adjusting our lives to cooperate with what God has revealed, getting up and getting dressed and getting ready to go. It's taking action on what God has invited us to so that we can experience, with God's help, the presence and the power of God in our lives. This is what it is. It's a lifestyle. It's how we follow Jesus, how we abide in him, how we follow closely, how we bear fruit. And so it is, I want to I ask you to consider, before we go to discussion, the memory verse that we worked on this week from John 8. He who belongs to God, here's what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. 
I've had some folks who have been concerned. Out of context, that's an important one, too. Basically, the, the way this is being used is a sledgehammer. If you're not hearing those voices inside of your head and hearing directly from God the Holy Spirit, well, you probably aren't saved. This is a blasphemous twisting of that text, by the way. So let's read it in context so that you have it fresh in your mind in context. It's John 8, 47. Remember our three rules for sound biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. Now, I did this last week, but you've got to hear the way they're doing this. So here's the verse out of context. He who belongs to God hears what God says, implying that somehow, well, he who belongs to God hears God's in, inner voice, inner promptings. Okay, uh, the reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. So, yeah, if you're not hearing God's promptings, well, then pff, you don't belong to God. John eight thirty nine. Let's put some context on this. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your fa- that your father did. They said, and we're, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said, well, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now, point this out here. They don't hear what Jesus is physically saying right there. They don't get it because they are not of God. Okay, This is not a reference to inner promptings. Um, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see what's going on here? When you put it in context, it's clear. This isn't talking about inner promptings or voices or anything like that. So the Jews answered him. I'm going to continue. It's a great story. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? See, that's the the crux of the matter. Jesus is God in human flesh, and they get what he's saying here. He's saying, if you keep my word, you will never die. Well, he's basically claiming to be God here. Right. And he's not saying that he's saying they don't understand his physical words. He's speaking right there because they are not of God. They're of the devil. They reject Christ rather than receive him because they don't believe. Right. So who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. 
I know him. If you were, if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? So yeah, Jesus is talking about Abraham as if he knows him, and he's revealing stuff about Abraham that you can't possibly know unless you know Abraham, because this isn't revealed in the Bible, right? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, but say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So when we put John eight forty seven back into context, this verse is not, is not under any circumstances saying that if you, the one who belongs to God hears inner voices and God speaks to him directly into his heart. It doesn't say that at all. We continue about this they're memorizing this verse you know i'm hearing that if i hear god's voice then i'm you know i'm a spiritual person uh but it may be that if i'm not hearing uh what does that mean does it mean i don't belong to god does it mean i'm not a spiritual person well i would like to suggest that we grow in our spirituality that we grow in our understanding of things of the spirit and so it may be that this new beginning as you're learning to hear god's voice it may be that you should actually hope and, and expect that later you will hear God more clearly. Oh, this is miserable. So if you don't hear God mystic style, well, you're not a Christian. Don't worry, you'll grow. Over time, you'll learn to hear God's voice and recognize, God, recognize God's voice more clearly. But in the interim time, as we're taking steps and as we're growing and experiencing God together, I, I want to ask you to, to write down, and I don't care where you do it, somewhere in this uh, section that we're in. You can go back to page 96 for all I care. But I want to encourage you to write down two words that I would just like for you to bear in mind as you deal with the discussion questions that we'll put up for you. I want you to write the word outcomes. Outcomes. Sometimes we expect certain outcomes. We expect outcomes from our behaviors. We expect outcomes from our investments. Um, certain outcomes that we look for in life. And I want you to write down the word process. Process. And I will confess to you as we launch into this brief time of discussion at our tables and in your homes and your dorm uh, with your Bible study friends, before we go to the discussion with those two words written down, let me tell you that there are times in my life when I'm hearing God, the Spirit of God is speaking uh, through uh, prayer or the Scripture, and I'm listening for God. The Holy Spirit is speaking. And, um, and what I'm expecting is an outcome. I pray. I say, God, here, you know, let's make a ludicrous example. I, uh, where's the car? I need a car. I need a car. Where's my car? I need a car. Not that car. Not that car. I need... I need one of those. <laughs> I've never prayed this prayer. That's why it's safe for me to pray. I mean, so it's safe for me to use as an illustration. So I'm, I, let's say I need a car. I need a boat. I need this or that. And I'm asking for this outcome. And what I've discovered, whenever I'm looking for an outcome, God doesn't always give an outcome. God many times will give me a process. I say, this is what I want. And God says, oh, let me show you how you could move there and have that and experience that. 
It begins with discipline and saving and getting in Financial Peace University and getting your finances in order. And then after 19 years of saving and taking baby steps and baby steps, then you'll not only be financially able to do it, but you'll be old enough to appreciate it. You know, so, so, so God, is, God is, uh, in, is giving me as an answer something I wasn't looking for. And sometimes I, I think that God literally lays something out for me as an answer to a prayer that is so different from what I assumed God would give me as an answer to prayer, that the problem wasn't that I wasn't hearing God, it's just that I wasn't expecting God to speak that way. And so I missed it. I missed it. I was so locked in on some other response that I missed it. Well, let me ask you to take a few minutes here. We're gonna take exactly 12 minutes and consider what it is that uh, happens when God is speaking and maybe, maybe God's speaking in ways you're not expecting. You can look at this. What if God's speaking and, and, and is, is speaking? So here's the question. What if God is speaking? Uh, what if God's speaking has and is happening in ways you're not expecting? Oh, I, I didn't know to look there. See, God was actually, you know, speaking out of a toad, you know, and, you know, I was getting ready to cross a creek there, you know, and I couldn't figure out how deep it was. I didn't want to get in too deep. So, you know, I was, how deep is this God? And, and I heard a frog go, knee deep, knee deep. And I didn't even realize that was God speaking through the frog telling me that the creek was knee deep. This is absurd. Ways that, that you didn't expect and so you missed his voice. Or secondly, what if you're expecting a specific answer to a specific prayer and God's answer is something that you didn't even ask for? You want to yeah, again, you missed his voice there. Yeah. With your finances and God gives you a class, Financial Peace University. Or you're praying for a job and God uh, sends you to a, a, a training education program to help you with your skills development. Uh, I want you to, to look at this, consider this. You've got 12 minutes of discussion. So at your tables, dive right in. Here we go. All right. Now I'm going to pause the uh, the recording there and fast forward it so that, you know, you you know, we don't have any dead air. I'm not going to let you guys discuss for 12 minutes, you know, what's going on. So I've fast forwarded the audio. Uh, here is now the next section after the, se I mean, what if God is speaking in ways you just didn't even know he was going to be speaking? You know, it could be a fly on the wall. It could be a, fr you know, a toad in the stream. It could be all kinds of different ways. I mean, you gotta, you gotta start looking everywhere to, you know, see if you can hear God speaking. But he, so here's Mark Beeson after that table discussion question. Well, as we come out of this discussion, let me uh, ask you to turn in your books to page 268, 268. And as you're going there, let me remind you of the significance and the importance of our relationships with each other. We are a people in motion, of people taking steps, of people on the journey of life, experiencing God each step of the way. And with each step of the journey, we benefit from the community around us, bringing to us the giftedness that God has poured into the others who share the journey, the skills, the talents, the ideas that others have contribute to our own experience of the journey, their wisdom, their training. And I find myself again and again so grateful for the word of instruction at just the right time, for someone who can sh shout a, a caution 
to me at just the right time. Watch out. I wouldn't do that. For the person who uh, is encouraging it, you know, just the right time. Uh, Some of you may be doing this in Tuscaloosa or uh, some far off place in Belgium or someplace, and that's great. Good for you. We're all experiencing God together. Um, So you may not know this, but when the church gathered last week on Thursday evening at great surprise to Sheila and to me and celebrated 25 years of ministry, I want you to know that that was a a timely experience. It was timely. In my spirit, in my life, on the journey, 25 years in, and to have uh, others around me on the journey pause for a moment, take time out of their busy schedules to, to, uh, to come and say, keep going, man. Don't keep, woo it was, it was a word of encouragement and celebration at a, at a very, very timely moment for Sheila and for me. We do this for each other. And so the next thing I want you to do as you talk at your, at your tables, as you discuss together, is to recognize that everyone at your table is on a journey. The danger is when we sit down like this, that we see people in this moment and at your table in the group you're discussing with, uh, we are not locked in this moment, a snapshot in time appearing only as we look on the outside at the moment. But we're in motion. We have come from somewhere and we are going somewhere. It may be that this has been one of the hardest days of your life. It may be that this has been a day of celebration. This was the day of challenge with your children. This was the day of good news at the office. This was the day of the layoff. This was the day of the doctor's appointment. And we come together like this, not just focused on the future and the mission, because the mission includes caring for one another, you see. This experience of God is not just about me going after my experience of God. I experience God most profoundly and most deeply when I recognize that God is leading and we are together following and he calls us to care for each other along the way. To take a moment and say, how are you? And then actually pause long enough for an answer. On page 268, uh, you can see that there the names, titles, and descriptions of God begin and will not go to the Son or the Holy Spirit, but I would like for you to scan the names on page 268 of the Father. I'd like these descriptions of God uh, from the Bible, what the Bible says about who God is, these attributes of God. And you scan down that first column, the faithful God, a source of strength, creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, God my Savior. 14 or 15 up from the bottom of that first column, put a little dot right beside God of gods. I'm just going to give you three or four that stood out to me. And I'm going to ask you, as we're scanning this, which of these attributes is significant to you right now? 
when you need God and you're trusting God and you're leaning in to follow God, which of these attributes do you need on your journey? Do you need in your circumstances? Do you need in your relationships this week, this day, this hour? This last week, these are four that hit me. 14 up from the bottom on the first column, the God of gods. This comfort in a world uh, given to worshiping all kinds of things, from money to pleasure. There is a God who is God of all gods, a God greater than any other God. Three down on the second column, this comforted me. This was helpful to me. This attribute of God, significant right now to me. He who blots out your transgressions. When I am weak, when I go the wrong way, when I choose what's wrong, to remember he is the one who blots out my transgressions. Go to the third column over, the first one. He's our leader. You know, every once in a while, someone will suggest I'm the leader or someone will listen to Rob Wegner teach or Dr. Bob teach or Jason Miller, or D.C. Curry. And they'll talk about them being our leader. And you should give honor where honor is due. And there are great leaders leading us, and that's a good thing. But this was so comforting to me. We're following God. This is not about any man. God is our leader. Eight or ten up on that third section under the fire. Now, I want to make a note here. This is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with doing a study on God's attributes and thinking about how that impacts your life. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to critique this, but I'm just going to want you to continue listening to it. There are eight or ten up from the last on that third column, right, right above the sun, go up eight or ten to the potter. This attribute of God, the potter. He's the one who molds me and shapes me. He's the one who, who not only shapes me to be the right form according to my opinion of myself, he's the one who decided what form I should be in the first place. So as we go to these next questions, I want you to consider what is your experience of God this last week? And how is it that one of these attributes on this list was significant to you on your journey or in your circumstances or your relationships. I'll give you uh, uh, just uh, eight minutes for this. So let's go ahead and start that. Okay. I'm going to fast forward just a smidge so that we can not have group discussion here. But uh, here's uh, Mark Beeson at the end of that discussion question. All right. You enjoying these conversations? I trust that they're helpful. Taking time to listen to each other is very important. And when uh, I find myself hearing others talk about the attributes of God that help them in the moment, they, uh, they describe how God's faithfulness or God's justice or God's mercy is encouraging to them in the moment. Many times it awakens in me a deeper understanding of who God is and how I can listen for God to speak to me and I can look for these attributes of God to be manifest and I can move deeper into those various aspects of God's being 
uh, in my experience of God, because someone else shares their story. Uh, there is a, a temptation for us to shrink back from talking about our need for God, our, and specifically in an area where we know if God doesn't show up, I am undone. I need God's love like never before. I need God's eternal significance and grace and goodness in my life because of grief or loss. Like I've, And if God doesn't hold me in his everlasting arms with his grace and goodness, I am undone. There are times when I, I hear people speak very specifically about how God has touched them, drawn them, uh, pulled them into their future. And it, and it helps me tremendously, tremendously. We hear God speak in the Bible. The Bible you've heard is the word of God. So I want to ask you to turn uh, in your books to page 104, page 104, uh, a passage, of course, a, a text you've already studied and you've worked on. But I want to walk you through, once again, the simple process that Blackaby has so brilliantly uh, outlined for us. Halfway down on page 104, the diagram at the top of the page is explained in five simple steps. Blackaby says it begins when you simply read it, read the Bible, and not a book about the Bible, not a commentary on the Bible. You just simply read the Bible. Now, keep in mind, the Bible is, well, the primary means by which God speaks. And, well, there's other things, too, your, your prayers, uh, circumstances, and other ways. So at least we're beginning with the text. And the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God, will take the Word, and the Spirit of God will reveal some truth. And it's very possible for you. Now notice, the Spirit of God is going to reveal some truth. The way that's put, it's not uh, the Spirit of God has revealed something in his word. It's as you are reading the word of God, you're experiencing God revealing some truth. The emphasis is very important here. This is almost like Lectio Divina. It doesn't really matter what the text says. What matters is what God reveals while you're reading it. And it may not have anything to do with what's actually in the text. Be in a group and, and three or four of you reading and, and you'll read a text. Love one another. Just that simple. If there was ever anything simple and clear, wouldn't that phrase be it? Love one another? And yet, don't you know at your table right now, because of the challenges that you face, the people that you each have to deal with, no, wait, you get to deal with, that text, love one another, could mean something as the Spirit of God quickens the truth for that person, or the other person, or the other person. And, and there will be a different emphasis of the Spirit, a different aspect of what is true, love one another, that is revealed in that moment. 
To each one of you, there'll be some specific application, an application of the truth of God's word. The spirit, it says uh, in, the, in the second step, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God will take what you've read, love one another, and will reveal truth. And this may be very specific, friends. And then what you do with the truth, number three, is you adjust your life to that truth and you obey. So you're sitting at the table and the scripture text, let's say... Now notice, there's no step where you confess your sin and are forgiven for not obeying what God has revealed in his word. You just adjust your life and start obeying. This is a confusion of law and gospel. There's no gospel here at all. One reads out loud, love one another. And you've got your Bible open and you look and you say, yep, that's what it says right there. Love one another. You're reading the word. And the spirit says to the person across the table, when the, when the word is read, love one another. The spirit in, in that person brings this truth. You have been uncaring. It's been out of your mind to even consider applying my love to the, the poorest among us. And they take this as the spirit works in them at that moment on their journey, and they're convicted about the poor. I need to love the poor. But another person at the table, the Spirit says to them when, when the, it's read, love one another, the truth is revealed as, I need to care about the lost. I have people in my own family that I love and I say I love, but here's the, here's the truth. They don't even know I'm a follower of Jesus. They don't, I mean, they don't even know. I never talk about it. I never talk about it. I need to love them more so that I can help them know Jesus. And so one hears the Spirit say, what about the poor? Another hears the Spirit say, what about the lost? And another hears the Spirit say, what about your son who has been in rebellion and you've been so disappointed that you have just decided to just be done with him? And God says, when you read love one another, God says to them, don't give up on your son. I haven't. So we read the word, and number two, the Spirit of God takes the word, reveals truth that's very specific. We adjust our lives, and we obey. And there's the kicker. When we act on what we've read, God works in us, through us, to accomplish his purposes. I want you to look at the screen. I'm going to put the questions up. I want you to focus on the last question. If God speaks through the Bible, prayer, and so on, how do you need to adjust your life? There's the question. And you've only got five minutes for this. So ask, how, do, do I, how should I adjust my life so that I can hear God? I mean, if God speaks through the Bible, how, what do I need to do? Read the Bible. So that when I read the Bible, I can hear God. How do I need to adjust my life? So again, notice what's going on here. The emphasis is not on what's written, but on... On the the personal application, and it's all law. There's no gospel. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no confession even of sins. Okay, and here's this is a subtle distinction, but it's an important one. God has revealed that it is His will that we love one another.
when we read that passage, what happens is is that God the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and unbelief. This is what it clearly says the job of the Holy Spirit is. So what happens is, is that my sin and your sin are different. So we can go to a clear passage that says it's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and unbelief, which is what they're describing here. And yeah, that's, and the work is being done through the word. But again, so now keep in mind, all throughout the Blackaby teaching, the Bible is just one means. So God speaks through the Bible. God speaks through prayer. God speaks through circumstances. God speaks through other people. God, and so all of these things that we're supposed to obey and adjust our lives to. When you are convicted of sin, is it, well, that's it. Just God expects you to just, you know, hey, you know, put yourself up by your bootstraps straps and start obeying. That's all law. When you're convicted of sin, it drives us to our knees and over and again confess our sins to God and pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. But see, notice the springboard. It, there are clear passages that say that God, the Holy Spirit, con- convicts us of sin and unbelief. How does he do it? Through the preaching of the law. Okay, This is the convicting work of the, of the Holy Spirit attached to the reading and preaching and hearing of his word, the law. And now this is somehow equated into a whole mystical thing. It's, this is mysticism and God's speaking everywhere, not just in his word, but all over the place. And your job is to find out what he's saying and then obey him. Well, actually, the job of a Christian is to repent and to be forgiven and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of, his, of our sins. Because when God, the Holy Spirit, convicts us, it's not just a naked call to obedience. It's a call to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. You need to properly distinguish law and gospel. I'd recommend reading Romans, uh, well, I'd start Romans 1, go all the way to through 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there, and all of the book of Galatians, if you're confused as to how to properly understand the law and gospel. But we continue. Talk about that at your table. you got five minutes. Go. All right, I'm going to fast forward here. Yeah, we were right at the tail end. So I'm going to fast forward. Here is Mark Beeson at the end of the table discussion time regarding that last question. Here we go. Well, as we experience God together, uh, we're encouraged by the stories that we hear of God's faithfulness. God is always trustworthy, always reliable. And from time to time, it's good to let someone uh, tell us their story of where they saw God being faithful and how God came through and to celebrate the faithfulness of God. Uh, in my own experience recently, for, for me personally, having uh, prayed for so many years, uh, having um, r- literally begged God for an impact in the world that was far beyond anything any of us could have ever done without God's activity. And uh, after 25 years, to not really know, honestly, I didn't really know the number, but to experience with you this last Thursday at the party, this, this shocking announcement of the goodness and the faithfulness of God, as we together have prayed, God, do what we cannot do. Do something far beyond any of us. Well, if there was ever anything beyond us, 
It is the changing of a human heart. It's the saving of a soul. I can't, I can't save anyone, nor can you, but God can change a heart. God can heal a heart. God can save a person forever and forever. And we go public with that once we're delivered and set free through Jesus Christ and and we find forgiveness in Christ and new life in Christ and we go public in baptism and it was only this last Thursday that I I actually had the number just shoved in front of my face uh those of you who- by the way that's not what baptism is nowhere in scripture does it say that baptism is a public profession of our decision to become a Christ follower baptism is God's work look up the bible passages in the New Testament that pertain to baptism and ask who's doing the work. It ain't the person being baptized. It's God. We're here, you know, and it's still hanging uh, in the uh, in the auditorium. 5,405 men and women have gone public with their faith saying, God save me. God save me. And it was so encouraging. It was so wonderful to celebrate, just to take a moment, reflect on that, and then celebrate what Almighty God has done. And even now, it just wells up in you. You can't keep from clapping. It's like, wow, look what God did. So at your tables, I'm going to ask you to just take five minutes and have, a, a, and maybe two or three of you can do this, but at least have one person there, celebrate God's faithfulness and share a recent experience that you've had with God where God was faithful, and you've just got to tell the, the story of how God was faithful so your table can celebrate with you the faithfulness of God. At least one person at each table will have a story. So take five minutes and do that now. So this is the seeker-driven version of testimony time. Five minutes, I'm going to fast forward here. To the end, here again is Mark Beeson. What I'd like to do uh, at this point in time is pray with you, and I'd like to invite you uh, to this prayer process at your table. And it may be that you've not prayed out loud in a group. It is uh, sometimes intimidating, especially if there's someone at your table that you think is quite the prayer. And when they pray, they speak King James and everything. I mean, and it can be, it can be, it can be difficult to remember that when we're praying, we're simply talking to our Father who loves us. So let me remind you, you're just talking to your Father who loves you. You don't have to repeat things over and over again. When my son talks to me, he doesn't say, and dad, and dad, and dad, dad, and dad, and dad, and dad. He also doesn't say just a lot. Dad, I just, dad, I just, dad, I just. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking we have to fill the silence. And so we Say, Father, I just, Father, I just, Father, Father, and Father, and Father, 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 Father. That's okay. But can I just encourage you to just relax? Your Father in heaven knows your needs before you express them. God loves you. God loves us beyond anything we could ever grasp. And it's okay to just say, Father, I love you. And that's it. Just say, Father, I need courage to be faithful. God, please help me 
but it's okay. I want to ask you to pray at your tables. And those of you who are willing to pray out loud, because it helps everyone else at your table pray. When I hear the others at the table and someone says, Lord, be with those we're trying to reach with your love. I think, oh, yeah, that's right. I don't say anything. I just think, yeah, that's right. I may say quietly, amen, God. And then someone else will say, Lord, help us to give more so we can care for the hungry. That's right, God, give me a generous heart. I mean, that's what I think. Give me a generous heart. I wouldn't have thought that had they not prayed out loud. We help each other pray when we just pray simple prayers together. We'll just have a five-minute clock. I'd like to start the prayers. When I say amen, then someone at your table can pick up and uh, we'll pray. So let me begin. The five-minute clock is running. Let me begin. Okay, I'm going to fast forward to the end. I'm going to skip his prayer so that you can catch the last couple of minutes of the teaching. You'll notice, mixed bag here. There's truth mixed with a base alloy of grievous error. Mixed bag. Here's Mark Beeson again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll be done in about a minute. Let me tell you what's coming next week. We're experiencing the presence of God, learning how to hear from God as God speaks through the church and God speaks through our circumstances. And we'll be working on this all week long, how God speaks to us through the church and how God speaks to us through our circumstances. It'll be rich and good. And I want you to remember this as you head into next week. You ready? This is what I want you to get. I want you to get this. Especially when you got circumstances that are tough. Just because a door seems closed to you doesn't necessarily mean the door is closed to Almighty God. Circumstances may be tough. That doesn't mean God can't open a door. So notice next week, we're going to find out how God speaks through not his word, but circumstances and other things. When we started Granger Community Church, before we began, I was told three times by very important people, no, you cannot start a new church. No, you will not start a new church. No. You are not going to start a new church. Ah, but God opened a door. Well, let me pray for you. We'll dive into next week. For everyone who's online, everyone at home, everyone, gals, all of you on Tuesday morning, guys, Wednesday morning, we're excited about what you're doing. Let me pray for you, and then everyone at the site at Granger is going to stay here for two seconds for an announcement. Yeah, okay, we're done. So that's what we have to look forward to next week, finding out how God speaks through, well, not his word but other means. So you won't want to miss next week's installment of our critique of Blackaby's Experiencing God curriculum as taught by Granger Community Church. So um, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. 
Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.